and yet they were unconcerned about their souls. Let's say you had an opportunity to step into a football stadium that was gathered there for the football game or a basketball since March Madness is going on, and they were there to watch the football game. They didn't have any desire to hear what you had to say, but there's, there's a bunch of them. Or would you rather share the gospel with 15 who knew they needed a Savior? Which would you choose? The answer to those questions may reveal much more than, than, than you think. It may reveal how the ideas, the philosophies of the world have permeated our hearts and even, and even Christianity. The idea that the world peddles on a regular basis is, is that bigger is, is better, right? We associate success with size, and we do it without even thinking. And a lot of times, sadly, we apply it to, to the church. I mean, at some point in the missionary presentation, the missionary, we just had our missionary focus weekend two Sundays ago, at some point the missionary is going to feel pressure to tell the church how many people came to Christ in the mission. Or somebody is sitting in the congregation thinking, I wonder how many decisions were made last year. Well, you can't be around a gathering of preachers or Christians for that matter, too long before the question of, so how big is your church come up? I mean, that, that's, a common, that's a common question. Yeah, how many baptisms do you have? I can remember being in seminary in, in Elmer Town's church growth class. It was a required class. I think I've shared this with you before, but it's so poignant based upon the passage this morning. When he randomly went around the room, he's got everybody in the class. Most of the time it was taught by a graduate assistant, but he just randomly went around the room and he pointed out the preachers that were studying there and he said, how big of a church do you want the pastor? Of course, put people in the spot, you know, the guys sitting there. And the first guy said, I don't remember the exact numbers, but it was small. It was like 200. And Elmer said, too small. So he turned to another guy on the other side of the room and said, how big of a church do you want a pastor? And so the guy upped the ante a little bit. He said, 500. And Elmer said, your vision's too limited. Well, the third guy got the point, and, and Elmer asked him, he said, 5,000. And, and Dr. Town said, now that's the spirit. You need big goals because we serve a big God. And I can just remember sitting there thinking, is that a question that Jesus would ask the disciples. Now, in fairness to Dr. Townsend's church growth class, it was talking about church growth, but I thought that I asked the question, is that a question that Jesus would ask his disciples? I don't ever recall anything like that in the New Testament. And the reason I didn't recall is because it's not there. In fact, you find the opposite. Jesus said to his disciples, you will find opposition. You'll be despised and rejected. Not many will be on the uh, on the, the narrow road that leads to life, there will be plenty on the, on, on the broad road. In fact, over and over, in the encounters like the one that we're going to see in Mark today, when Jesus had a bigger crowd gather, the more difficult it seems that, that he makes the demands of discipleship. And, of course, God knows the heart, so Jesus can see the hearts of the crowds, like, uh, unlike us. But when, he, when, a, when a giant crowd gathers, Jesus disperses the fickle followers there with the demands of the gospel. Think about this. He chooses 12 simple men to lay the foundation of the church. That's the very next passage in Mark. I mean, it seems crazy whenever you think about it. Jesus could have 
could not have chosen 12 more unqualified, unlikely men to launch the church and hang all of the success of the gospel on, if, if the success was based on human beings. And he did that because achievement in God's economy is not based on our abilities, it's based on His. And God doesn't grade success by size, but by spirituality. And missing that truth comes out in, in many ways. You've probably heard the statement, change the, the method, not the message. If you've been in church any length of time, the translation of that is the end justifies the means. Whatever it takes, you do whatever it takes to bring people to church or bring people to Christ. If you get them to come and if they hear the gospel, they make some kind of, of decision, then, then it doesn't matter how you get them there. It doesn't matter the method. The method doesn't matter. The only thing that matters is the, is the message. Well, in the gospel of Mark today, Jesus teaches the exact opposite. Exact opposite of church growth strategies, exact opposite of change the method, not the message. And while God is more concerned for people than the most passionate soul winner you have ever met, the way in which you do ministry matters. Jesus shows us that spirituality, the spirituality of people, is far more important than the size of the gathering. And the means and the message are, are connected. In fact, the method that you can use, can even lead people to miss the message altogether. So if you're not there, open your Bibles to Mark chapter 3. Mark chapter 3, and Clay has already read for us verses 7 through through 11. Now you'll notice probably in your Bible, your, your Bible has divisions that, that are there. That's not part of the original text, but your study Bible may break the passage down. And I include verse 6 in the in the Sabbath healing before, because it culminates with with the Pharisees going out to plot to destroy Jesus. And verse seven begins a brand new a brand new scene. At the end of chapter two and the beginning of chapter three, Jesus declares he's the Lord of the Sabbath in the grain field, and then he demonstrates that in the synagogue. And it infuriates the Pharisees. And you can see that in verse 6. It says, Then the Pharisees went out immediately, plotted against, with the, against him with the Herodians, how they might destroy him. And so while there's opposition from the religious leaders, while that's increasing, the popularity of Jesus is growing amongst the people to the point that they're coming to him in droves. And rather than thinking this is a good thing, and Jesus running toward the crowds, Jesus actually withdraws from the crowd. And he teaches us a lesson about how the gospel grows. And teaches us a lesson about his, his method. Now, my mother was an English teacher. I know you can't always tell that by my, by my diction and my grammar. But she was faithful to read to me whenever I was a child. And, and one of the things that she read was nursery rhymes. You remember nursery rhymes? Mary, Mary, quite contrary, how does your garden grow? Do you remember that one? Well, God's garden doesn't grow in hearts focused on gaining something from God. The gospel grows in the humble hearts of broken people. And we must remember that whenever we do Christ's work. Do you remember how Jesus begins the Sermon on the Mount? He gives the Beatitudes. The picture of the Beatitudes is a portrait of the repentant heart. Those that, that are getting ready to enter into the kingdom, thinking rightly about the law, will, will choose the right path. And Jesus teaches this lesson right before He launches the twelve apostles 
Look, if you would, at verse 13. He went up on the mountain and called to him those he himself wanted, and they came to him, and he appointed the twelve. That's, that's next Sunday. So here's a summary statement of Jesus' ministry and to keep the mission the main thing. Right before he sends the apostles out on their, on their own mission, doing their own ministry. And he takes, he, 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 he takes up the, the confrontation with the, with the religious leaders who are now opposing his ministry. And right before he begins this new era where he'll send out the twelve apostles in their own ministry, he reminds them and us of the mission. And he demonstrates its priority. And how you do ministry matters. Jesus is not concerned with drawing crowds to meet their earthly needs. He's concerned about people hearing the gospel and meeting their true spiritual need. And the only way that they'll hear requires us and his disciples to stay focused on his message. And that's a message that he's preaching, that he's proclaiming. The miracles just back up the message that he's proclaiming. But Jesus came to preach. He came to preach the good news of the, of the kingdom. So what's the outline of this passage? Title, Coming to Christ for All the Wrong Reasons. And that's what you see with this crowd here. And so there's the description of the crowd given in verse 7 and the verse, first part of verse 8. He describes who the crowd is. There's a great crowd and he tells us where they're from, and he also tells us the issues that they have, why they were gathering. Then he gives us the desire of the crowd. What did they want from Jesus, and how were they approaching Jesus? That's in the second half of verse 8. And then there's the direction of Christ, or the decision that Jesus makes in light of that. He gives, a, he gives some instructions to his disciples, and he commands the unclean spirits who were announcing who he was. And he silences them. Let's look at the, the description of the crowd. Look, if you would, at verse 7. It says, But Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea, and a great multitude from Galilee followed him, and from Judea and Jerusalem and Idumea, and from beyond the Jordan, and from those... Uh, and those from Tyre and Sidon, a great multitude, repeated twice, when they heard how many things he was doing, they came to him. Now Mark says that following the healing in the in the synagogue, Jesus withdrew to the sea by uh, withdrew to the sea with his disciples. Now you can see the water from the synagogue in, in Capernaum. And the word that's used here to, to withdraw means to take refuge. He takes refuge at the, at the sea. And, and Jesus wasn't running from the religious leaders. He's not taking refuge because he's afraid of what the Pharisees are going to do to him and the fact that they're plotting against him. He's taking refuge from the great crowd of people that follow him. That's the reason Mark repeats that twice. And he tells us the crowd's origin. Now, you... You'll find plenty of places in the Bible that defines how big the crowd is. Not numbers like 10,000, but it's great or it's a large gathering or a large crowd. But, it, but it's not all the time that you see this, this, uh, this, where they're from. So that's significant. Mark says it's a great crowd. He says that twice and he identifies where the crowd is from. And that's for a purpose. He says 
Galilee. That's obviously where Jesus is doing his, his itinerant ministry there. He's preaching in the villages around the Sea of Galilee. Also in, or they're from Judea. They're from Jerusalem. From Edomia, Tyre, and, and, and Sidon. Galilee was the, was the immediate area. Judea is the, is the middle section. Jerusalem, the holy city where the temple was. And, and all three of those are the heart of the promised land. And the Jews today don't have all of the land, but there's the, the heart of the promised land. And Edomia is the, is the southernmost border of the land. It's the land of the Edomites. King Herod was a descendant of the, of the Edomites. He was a half Jew. And Tyre and Sidon is the northernmost border. So you have the entire land of Israel represented here. And Mark also tells us the crowd's uh, oppression. Mark doesn't just tell us where the crowd's from, but he, but he gives the makeup of the crowd. He describes their issues. Look, if you would, at verse, verse 8, the end of it. They came when they heard how many things he was doing. And he told the disciples that a small boat should be kept ready for him, lest the multitude crush him. Why were they trying to crush him? They came because they were sick, because they desired healing, because they heard about what he could do. And look at verse 11. There are also within this crowd people with unclean spirits. They were oppressed by unclean spirits. The unclean spirits, whenever they saw the Lord, they fell down before him and cried out, You're the Son of God. And all of that's to reveal that you have the right crowd gathering for the wrong reasons. You have the right crowd from all of Israel gathering to the king, but they're gathering for all the wrong reasons. Jesus' popularity wasn't just in Galilee. That's what Mark wants us to understand. It started in Galilee, but his popularity has reached all of Israel by this point. And the crowd contains people represented from the entire nation, just like it was supposed to. Jesus is the seed of Abraham. And the mission of Jesus was He was going to come as the suffering servant of Israel, just like Isaiah foretold. I mean, the beginning of the Passion Week includes when Jesus presents Himself as the King of the Jews, right? That's the triumphal entry. John, in his Gospel, says He came unto His own, and His own received Him not. Paul said salvation is, is unto the Jew first, and then to the Gentiles. And that's exactly what you see Jesus doing here. Before Jesus becomes the Savior of the world, He presents Himself as the King of Israel. And even the judgment plaque that hung over Jesus on the cross said what? Jesus, and He is King of the, of the Jews. It's God's plan that He would be the Savior of the world, and God's plan of redemption, Abraham would bring forth a nation that would be a blessing to the entire world. And Jesus is the seed of Abraham who would bring blessing to all of mankind. And they were to receive him, and then the kingdom would come. But they reject him, don't they? And so Mark's point here is you have this great gathering of all the people from Israel, from, from both borders of the land and everything in between. But rather than receiving the Messiah and hearing the message of the Messiah and ushering in the kingdom which was their ultimate purpose, so they'd be a light unto the Gentiles and be a blessing to all nations. They're seeking physical healing. And that brings us to the desire of the, of the crowd. I've already read it, but look at it again at the end of verse 8 after he identifies. He again says, a great multitude. And when they heard how many things he was doing... 
or how many things he did came to him. Now, you can easily read over that. You can easily read over all of this passage. You say, well, there's not really much exciting here. It's just kind of a bridge between one section and Mark to the other, but it's significant. Look at Mark 1.14. Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God. That was his mission. And he was saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. And he's saying this to Jews, repent and believe the gospel. The time was completed and the kingdom is upon them. And what they needed to do was repent and believe. And if they did, then God would bring in the kingdom, which would also include the Gentiles. That was the blessing that they had. Israel and Jews are not any less sinless than we are. They come to God the same way through, through faith in Christ. No man comes into the Father but by me. But they had the blessing of receiving the covenants and the law. And they had the blessing of bearing the Messiah. And here he is. And he's preaching the gospel of God, the good news of God. And the time was, was God's appointed time. And the kingdom is upon them. And what does Jesus find when he does this? He finds opposition from the religious leaders because... He was attacking their traditions and their false religion, the system that they had set up. He finds popularity with the crowd because of what he did, the healings and the miracles, and so they're gathering for that. But his mission was preach a message that people needed to believe. You see that? Repent and believe the gospel. Don't seek a healing, and don't get mad when I tear down your traditions. And the crowd that came had no interest in hearing that message. They wanted to receive the benefit. There's the desire of the crowd. And, and Mark says that this gathering thronged him. <laughs> and their goal was to touch him. This crowd wasn't only massive. They were selfishly motivated. Look if you would at verse 9. So, he withdraws, takes refuge by the sea with his disciples... The great multitude of all Israel comes, the right crowd, for the wrong reason. And they came because of what he did, what they, they heard that he did, not because of his message. And so he tells his disciples in verse 9 that a small boat should be kept ready for him because of the multitude. Lest they should crush him or throng him. For he healed many. So that many who had afflictions pressed upon him to touch him. So the gathering is pressing upon the Lord to the point that he's going to be driven into the sea. So he has a, a boat ready and their goal was to touch him. It wasn't to listen, it was to touch him. Notice how many words that Mark uses about doing what Jesus did and what they wanted from Jesus. And it wasn't to listen. It's like a mob clamoring to reach its goal. That's a picture that Mark gives here. Don't think of this as a, as a kind crowd just gathering to Jesus to, to see whether he would do something good for them. Both of those words that he used gives the idea of like a mob. They're clamoring to reach the goal. And, and his concern was while they were trying to get to him, they would crush him and the disciples in the rush. It's a, 
It's, a, it, it's like the picture of a, of a large group um, pressing against a gate. I, I've tried to think of something that, that an image that, that, that I could, could, could use to illustrate it. And, and the best thing that I came up with, if you've ever seen the pictures of the fall of Vietnam where the last helicopters are being, are being, uh, are, are evacuating people before the Viet Cong you know, are, are going to arrive and they're pressing against the gates and they're trying to keep people, people out. That's, that's the picture here. They're trying to get to him because they wanted to touch him. That's the reason they're pressing against him. That's what it says. They pressed about him to touch him at the end of verse 10. They, they hoped and thought that whatever power he had would transfer to them if they could touch him. And then they would receive healing. They have no concern about him. They have no concern about his disciples. They have no concern about his message. It actually happens once, right? With a woman with the issue of blood, she touches Jesus, and she's healed. But that wasn't God's normal means of of healing. I can vividly remember a man who showed up one day at, at Cornerstone whenever I was the whenever I was the pastor there. It was unknown to me, unknown to anybody else. Just shows up, pulls in the parking lot, walks up, and he says he wants to, wants to talk to somebody about, about Jesus. And I said, well, I'm your man. <laughs> of course, I was elated and sat down and talked to him probably about 30 minutes. And after 30, 45 minutes, he prayed to receive the Lord and, and shed great tears and seemed to rejoice, and we rejoiced together and told him when the services was the following Sunday, and I'll be here. So he shows up the following Sunday, just like he promised. And, and in conversation after church, I found out in the following month, he was, he was facing a hearing for taking immoral pictures of his stepdaughter. And in that conversation, he asked me to come to court to, to be a character witness for him. And I asked him this simple question, did you do it? And he looked at me without hesitation, and he said, yes, I did, but I don't want to go to jail. And I told him, well, first of all, there's no way that I would go be a character witness for you because I don't know you. I don't know your character, so I couldn't do that. But if you're really serious about your repentance, what you need to do is you need to cast yourself on the mercy of God and go stand before the judge and tell him what you just told me. You did it. And then you take whatever consequences come because Romans 13 says God has established the authorities. And what you've done is not only sinful before God, but it's against the law. The court case came, and he was given probation, and the following week he never, never showed back up at church again. There have been many, an individual that's come to Christ for what they thought that the Lord could do for them, and in some cases, the Lord even gives them what they desire. He's merciful. He's a merciful God, is He? Aren't you glad that God doesn't give us what we desire, even when it's our fault? But those same people will fall by the wayside once they receive the benefits if they've never received the gospel. And Jesus is far more concerned about them hearing the gospel than He is healing them. He's not unconcerned about their physical needs, but He's prioritizing one of the students while we were on the trip asked Boaz, if a Gentile could become a Jew, how do, how do you become a Jew? They were trying to witness to him and start a conversation so they could tell him how to become a Christian. And he said, yes, you can, but it's very difficult on purpose. 
They don't want it to be easy for you to convert to Judaism because then it will be easy to walk away. You find Jesus doing the exact same thing. He never failed to freely offer the promises of the gospel, but he never failed to give the demands of discipleship of what it would mean, what it would cost you to follow Christ. Jesus said, if any man comes after me, let him pick up his cross and follow me. If any man doesn't hate father, mother, brother, sister, yea, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. That's not to be mean. That's to tell you the reality that, yes, you receive heaven, but following Christ can be difficult. Salvation is free, but becoming a follower of Jesus may cost you something. You may lose status. You may lose job or family or even your own life, but you'll gain heaven. And so Jesus says, what does a profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his soul? It's a wonderful deal. <laughs> but it can be hard. And you have to get the mission of Christ right whenever you're doing ministry. And if you make it all about the benefits and what Jesus can do for you, and you leave out hell or you leave out the demands of discipleship, when the going gets tough, the, the not-so-tough get going. They get disillusioned or even worse and make a false profession. Look at how Jesus responds to this crowd. Here's the, the direction of Christ or the decision that Jesus makes. And in light of this, he's not rude, he's not ugly, but he doesn't embrace them. Look at verse 9. He instructs the disciples, and he commands the evil spirits. Those are the two directions that he gives in light of being pressed by the crowd. He gives instruction to the disciples to prepare the boat, and he commands the evil spirits. He instructs the disciples first to get the boat ready to get away from the crowds. Now, there's many times that Jesus uses a boat as a mobile pulpit. It's like a, a natural amphitheater there. If you're on the bank of the, of the Sea of Galilee and Christ is in the boat on the water, there's no microphone like there is today. He's speaking and people could hear. There are many times when the crowd would press upon him. He'd get in the boat and he'd teach them from the boat. He also uses it as an escape pod. Do you remember when Jesus fed the 5,000 5, right outside of Bethsaida? And the crowd was going to take Jesus by force and make him king because of what he had done. And Jesus refuses to become king. He actually puts the disciples in a boat and sends them across the sea because he doesn't want them to get swept up in some zealot movement that was, that was there. And this crowd has no concern for each other or for Jesus, so he prepares an escape route. And he also commands the evil spirits not to reveal who he is. Look at verse 11. And the unclean spirits, whenever they saw him, these were individuals that were demon-possessed in the crowd, fell down before him and cried out, saying, You are the Son of God. Exactly the same thing that Mark says when he starts the gospel. I'm going to... This is the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. The demons are declaring He is the Son of God. But look at verse 12. Here's the other command. Just prepare the boat. But He sternly warned them, that's the demons, 
that they should not make him known. Some people in the crowd are possessed with evil spirits, but they cannot remain silent in the presence of Christ. They fell down before him because he was God. They cried out, you're the son of God, because that's exactly who he was. And Jesus sternly warns them not to say that and not to do that. It's kind of interesting, isn't it? Now, don't get the idea, we were talking about this last week, don't get the idea that that there are more demons in the day of Jesus than today. It's, It's not possible. Demons are fallen angels. They were part of creation. There's a limited number of them. Satan doesn't produce little demons. He, he can't make anything. He's not a creator. He's a created being. There's a limited number of demons. No more demons then than there are today. Satan can't make them. The difference during Christ's day was that the Son of God was walking the earth and, and they couldn't get around Christ without exposing themselves. And that's what you see here. And they acknowledge his authority by bowing, and they affirm his identity by crying out his title, the Son of God. And the sad thing in this situation is this should be reversed. The crowd, which was made up of all of Israel, should be bowing before their king, who was bringing in the kingdom... But they only see a miracle worker that they can get something from. And the demons know they're condemned and will never enter the kingdom, bow and declare that Jesus is the Son of God. That's the irony of the situation here. James chapter 2 says, Someone will say, You have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I'll show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and tremble. The demons know and acknowledge who God is. And the crowd was so blinded by their own desires that they couldn't even see what the demons could see. There is great blindness that comes from a self-seeking heart. And the warning that Jesus gives to us and to his disciples that were part of this right before he sends them out in their own ministry is you have to keep the main thing the main thing. And that's proclaiming the gospel. And if you ever veer from the mission, people can end up missing the message altogether. Think about what would happen if Jesus would have given the crowd exactly what they wanted, do you think they would have continued to follow Him as the Messiah? They would have taken their healing and they would have went back home. And Jesus is far more concerned about them coming into the kingdom, not being healed on earth. So, what do you do with that in witnessing or in ministry in a church? Let me give you four things in, in application. When you're doing ministry, keeping the main thing the main thing, following what Jesus has done here, still having compassion for souls, but making sure that you model the ministry of Christ, make sure you share the whole gospel. That's the first thing I would say to you. When you're witnessing, make sure you give the bad news before you get to the good news. And that requires some discernment. You don't need to beat people over the head with their sin. 
But why do you think it's easier for a drug addict or, or someone who's lost their family or, or, or their health to come to Christ? Because they know their need. Why is it so hard for somebody who's healthy or somebody who has a fat bank account or whatever it is to see their need for the gospel because they don't have any need for God? And the gospel doesn't begin with Jesus loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. The gospel begins with you're on a collision course with a holy God and accept your repent and believe you're going to hell. That is the reality. That's the need. And when you establish the need, then the Savior makes sense. John the Baptist was sent to prepare the people for the Messiah. And he preached a baptism of repentance. And see, the Jews thought they were going to heaven because they were Jews. So they were looking for a Messiah that would deliver them from the Romans. But they needed to see where they stood before God in their sin so they would be ready for the Savior's message. So he's preparing the way. And when we witness, we do the same thing. The bad news before the good news. The whole gospel... Secondly, I would say make sure that you use the right materials. Use the right materials. What do I mean by that? When witnessing or working in the church? 1 Corinthians 3, Paul says, I planted and Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. And you know the story? The people in Corinth were following leaders and not Christ. And so Paul says men are just tools that God uses in his work. And he tells us that we're workers, but as workers, we need to make sure that we use the right materials in the gospel work. Listen to 1 Corinthians 3, verse 10. According to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, or straw, good materials, bad materials, each one's work will be manifest for the day will disclose it. You do gospel work with human means and worldly efforts, it's going to be burnt up in the day. You use the right materials, which is the Word of God and the Spirit of God, And it will remain because those are the tools that God uses. Billy Graham estimated that only 10%, and he said he was being generous, only 10% of the people who made decisions in all of his crusades were truly born again. I didn't say that. Billy Graham said that about his own people that, that, that came. Not only do you use the right materials, make sure that you focus on God's glory and not only man's need. Oh, there's a need. This need's great here, and Jesus is not callous toward the need, and you shouldn't be callous toward the need. But what will propel you to go for God and to take risks and to go to the hard places and be willing to do the right thing is if your focus is on God's glory. There's never been a Christian that lived who cared more for the salvation of men and worked to prove it than the Apostle Paul. Paul even said he was so burdened for souls that if he could be accursed himself, he would gladly do that and perish if his countrymen would come to him. That's a burden for souls, isn't it? And yet he never compromised the glory of God in any of the ministry that he did. 
And he understood that ministry is about getting God glory through saving sinners. And if your focus is on that, then sinners will be saved. And finally, you've probably heard this statement ad nauseum, but it's true. Success, make sure that you remember success is faithfulness. Faithfulness to the Word, faithfulness to do what God commanded. And whenever you do, God will build His church. I want to end with this story. Boaz tells a, tells a Jewish story every time we come to the ancient city of Dan. The ancient city of Dan is where there was false worship. They set up a, an alternative temple there, and they began to worship the golden calf. Do you remember that? Laish. And he tells a story about a man that God appears to one day. And the man falls down on the ground before the Lord. And God speaks to the man and he says, you see that giant rock over there? The man says, yeah, I see the rock. And God says to him, what I want you to do every day, I want you to stop and I want you to push on that rock. And the man says, yes, Lord, I will. That's exactly what I'll do. So every day for the three months, the man stops and he faithfully pushes on the rock, and then he goes on to work, just like the Lord told him to do. One day, as he's pushing on the rock, Satan shows up and looks at the man and says, what are you doing? And he says, well, God appeared to me and told me to push on this rock, so I'm doing exactly what God told me to do in obedience to him. And Satan says, how long have you been pushing on the rock? And the man says, for three months. And Satan says, that's crazy. Look at the size of it. You'll never move that rock. Has the rock even moved an inch or a centimeter since you began to push on it? And the man said, no. He said, well, you're crazy. Why do you keep pushing on the rock? So the man begins to think, and he says, you know, he's right. There's no way I'll ever move that rock. It's too big. It really hasn't moved in three months. I've been doing this for three months. No results. And so the next morning when he goes by to work, he doesn't push on it. And God appears to him. And he says, the Lord says to the man, why, don't you, why aren't you pushing on the rock like I told you? The man says, I, I did for three months and nothing happened. The rock never moved. And God replies, when did I ever tell you that it would? I told you to push on the rock. I didn't tell you that it would move. And then Boaz goes on to say, uh, God said to him, look at the muscles that you've developed over the last three months pushing on the rock. The muscles that you have in your arm that you helped that elderly person last week to do a good deed. And I share that story because I think we fall prey to, to Satan's devices at times. And we're pushing on the rock and it doesn't seem like it's moving. And our job is to obey God. It's his job to know the reasons why. And we may never know all of God's purposes why we go through some of the things that we do, but God does. And He always has a purpose. And you apply that concept to ministry, the Bible is explicitly clear. Christ will build His church, but it's also, and it's also clear that we're to do that work, but nowhere does it promise individual results. You could push on the rock of witnessing for the Lord your entire life and never bring someone to Christ. But we're to push on the rock and to be faithful.
And when we do, that's success. You let God worry about the results. And yet most of the time when you push on the rock in witnessing, the Lord gives you the blessing of leading someone to Him.